Hello and welcome to Yammer of the Gods, the podcast where we talk about writing about music. This month it's a pulp special and we'll be discussing two books, Truth and Beauty, the Story of Pulp by Mark Sturdy and Freak Out the Squares, My Life in a Band Called Pulp by Russell Senior. Uh, we've got a very special guest today, uh, one of the writers of the books, it's not Russell Senior, <laughs> Um, my name is Hazel Smachinska and I'm joined by Tom Robinson and a very special guest, Mark Sturdy, who has written the definitive biography of Pulp. And only. <laughs> so um, we'll we'll just get started with that. Do you want to tell us how you ended up writing a book about Pulp? Yeah, I suppose I'm a standard Pulp fan insofar as I was sort of about 17 when they hit it big. And uh, they sort of sucked me in, as they do suck you in. And they were interesting to me, in and of themselves, obviously. I mean, I'm not going to go on about why I like them, because probably, you know, people who are listening to this will be into pulp or not, and will probably know what's good about them or not. But I suppose I was intrigued by the fact that it was always mentioned in passing when you read about them in The Enemy or Cure, whatever, that they'd had this this long past before they'd kind of started doing well. And it was always slightly brushed under the carpet, so everyone knew his and hers wasn't their first album. But you kind of didn't get to know about what happened before then, unless you really sort of dug. It was it was pre-internet. This is sort of before the days you could spend an afternoon laughing at you know someone's out of date MySpace or whatever. You couldn't do that, so it was quite. I don't know. It, it it presented a sort of nerdy challenge to sort of dig back into their into their sort of their ancient past, and I guess by by ninety six when they were massive, and you know you know those sorts of books that come out when a band's big, and it's um, about eighty pages long and glossy, and it's lots of press clipping type quotes, and there were a couple of those that came out, and I sort of started reading reading through them in HMV or wherever, and uh, you just sort of start picking out errors in a really geeky sort of way, and I sort of realised, well, why don't I try and write a book then? And I'd, I'd, I'd read a couple of, you know, still quite young then, but I'd read a couple of music or biographies. I was really into Pink Floyd when I was about 14, and they were a band who sort of lent themselves to long geeky biographies that were a long list of dates, and I thought, I could do a long list of dates, <laughs> that'd be fine. And uh, I just sort of... I came up with a a list of people who I wanted to track down. You know, there'd been a few things that sort of talked about their their early history by then. So I had this list of about 20 ex-members and other people who'd sort of been involved with their 80s Sheffield career. And uh, I just went down to Weatherby Library and got the Sheffield phone book on the microfiche. (laughs) That's good research, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was how did you go about tracking down the former members and associates of Pulp who you interviewed for the book, but I didn't realise the answer was going to be as prosaic as you looked him up <laughs> in the telephone directory. Yeah, the, um, the Philip Thompson was quite hard, their second bass player for the children at home. Because, um, you know, there's a lot of Thompsons in the Sheffield phone book. Did you really ring everybody? I rang every P. Thompson in the Sheffield phone book. What did you say? 
Hello. <laughs> My name's Mark Sturdy. I'm researching a book about pulp. I'm trying to get hold of someone called Philip Thompson, who was their bait. Uh, they, yeah, they'd usually hung up by then. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember how I eventually got him. I think I, I don't think that particular one was successful. I think I'd people's parents had stayed in touch, you know, because there was people were sort of dispersed around the country. But you you'd find someone with a rarer surname. Like Pinchbeck. Jamie Pinchbeck was an easy one. There's one Pinchbeck in the Sheffield phone book, and it's Jamie Pinchbeck's dad. And, uh, their parents are still in touch with um, someone else's parents, so you kind of get phone numbers that way. That sort of remind thing. our listeners who Jamie Pinchbeck is. Oh, come on. Bass guitar in 1980 to 82. <laughs> Clearly. He's now a systems engineer in Leicester. <laughs> he so, was. are you in touch with anybody from the book? Or Am I now? Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm on um, friends. You know, friends on Facebook with a couple of them. Simon Hinkler stayed in touch with him, and yeah, a couple of couple of people. Well, I, th- I think you know, it, it's a it's a sliding scale. There are people you wouldn't particularly wish to stay in touch with. So, who who was the most intimidating to interview out of all these people? Um, Russell Senior was a strange encounter. The summer I finished my A-levels, um, I made my first trip to Sheffield. I booked a couple of days in this guest house and um, just sort of went visiting or had people come to me. And um, I'd sent letters to all the then current members of Pulp, but Russell had just left, and didn't hear back from any of them apart from Russell who rang me at home at my parents' house. And my voice sort of jumped up several octaves but he agreed to meet me in this in his guest house and um he it, you know it was summer 1970 he still sort of looked like he just stepped off the cover of different class but he'd quite recently left the band and he was a bit prickly and i think it was more he'd more come to check me out than actually do an interview um and i never really interviewed him he answered questions over the years about specific factual things. But my friend who was there at the time said that the two of us didn't make eye contact at any time oh. during the conversation. He was taken aback because I was a kid. He thought I might have been someone who'd been around in Sheffield in the 80s or something. So I guess he was disappointed on that front. And um, his big concern was, well, he didn't feel that I was the right person to be doing a book about pulp because how would I sort of really understand what the impact of something like the Minor Strike would be to an mm. unknown band in the 80s? Which, yeah, was a valid point, but I, I did the book anyway. Um, so do you think when Russell Senior came to meet you, he was at all suspicious about your motives because Pope had received some degree of tabloid notoriety during their... I think a few people fame. were, yeah. Um, mm. I mean, I was quite lucky to... Um, get Jarvis's sister Saskia to talk to me um, and surprisingly 1997 she was still in the phone book um, or it might be an old phone book I found anyway I don't know <laughs> um, but yeah she she was quite wary of who of who I was but I think I was probably so obviously young and gauche and awkward that when I said I was just a massive fan who wanted to do something she believes me <laughs> and yeah I don't think there was anyone who actually explicitly said no there was a guy called Michael Paramore who was, his part in the pulp story was quite 
minor, even compared to Jamie Pinchbeck. Um, but his sister had been Jarvis's first girlfriend, and I don't really touch on this very much in the book. You could read between the lines and work it out. Uh, but you know there's quite a lot in there about uh, Jarvis's first relationship and it ending badly and all that sort of thing and uh, it being an emotionally bleak time. Um, I think he was... There was an unspoken awkwardness that I was about to start asking him about that and I had to eventually kind of um, preempt him and say, I'm not going to sort of press you on that. Mm. I mean, the book doesn't really touch on sex and band members' romantic lives and those kinds of private issues. <laughs> Did you avoid those topics because you didn't want to upset anyone or were you just not very interested? Um, maybe a bit of both, really. I mean, I'll, you could probably tell from reading the book which bits of Pulp's story I was interested in. It was all the extremely geeky stuff of, of, of just tying together these threads of, you know, the strange path they took as a as a band. I think partly I've steered clear of it out of yeah, a degree of not not wanting to do the sort of dirt digging kind of thing. I think at that point um Jarvis had very clearly gone through this thing of finding it difficult that there had been these tabloid intrusions into his life and I was still holding out hopes, frankly, of getting an interview with Jarvis at some point. So if, if it had got back to him, I'd spoken to, you know, all his ex-girlfriends and stuff. I mean, if you compare it to... I don't know if anyone's read the um, the equivalent Suede book, which is Love and Poison by David Barnett. That was written by someone who had been closer to the band. Um, he, he'd kind of run their fan club, I think, and... Um, there was full input from the band members sort of throughout that and it's it's a lot more it's got the geeky fan stuff and it's got a lot more dirt in it as well but I think Suede themselves have been quite happy over the years to talk about their their rock pig behaviour um, whereas Pulp have always been a bit more cagey about that so yeah I mean, the other reason was just that that I I worked with the material that I could get Mm. very little of which was uh, who Jarvis was shagging at the time or or whatever. On the material thing, I'm quite intrigued about how on earth did you gather everything together? I mean, what was your system for actually writing a book, having that much information and deciding how you're going to put it? In? I mean, did you word process it? Did you have a computer? Yeah, yeah. It was, it was started on a Sam Coupe. <laughs> I hope you know what Sam Coupe is. I really do. It was a... No, no, I, I still laugh. I laughed because it sounded ridiculously old. But I yeah, don't know what it is. It, it, it was a really unsuccessful computer from the early nineties that people who owned Spectrums got. Yeah, it, I had one of those for years. When I when I originally started writing it, it was going to be a bit like um, you know those omnibus press visual documentary books, mm. where it's a timeline, yeah, and uh, and some photos. It was the the a lot of the period of drafting it was like that, and somewhere along the way, I can't quite remember when, I decided I was going to knit it together. But that was actually quite an easy way uh, 
of having a framework for it. You know, I had a list of factual things like gigs and record release dates and stuff like that. And every time I interviewed someone, I'd transcribe it and sort of stick those quotes in, in between the relevant dates. And uh, I don't know, maybe it reads a bit like that still in places. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, there wasn't there wasn't that much planning. I mean, I I wrote it over quite a long period. I mean, I started it in 96 and finished it at the end of 2002. And obviously that was in fits and starts around sort of being at sixth form university and after that and stuff. Um, but most of it was done in the last six months. Um, like like a lot of these sorts of books, you can sort of tell it speeds up towards the end. <laughs> but um, there wasn't really any overarching plan. You know, a, a, a story like this writes itself in a way because that's the story. So, mm-hmm. you know, you think I'm going to do a chapter on this period and a chapter on the period after that. And, you know, the, I wasn't tempted to do a non-chronological thing. You know, it's it's pretty linear, really. Were Omnibus Press involved in it before you had the finished article? Yeah, yeah. I'd um, I wrote to them really early on, and they sort of said something like, "Oh well, thanks for sending your stuff. We're quite interested. We'll see how the next album does. The next album being this is hardcore." Oh. And um, yeah, they. I kept on sending them stuff over the years, and they never quite bit until I was doing middle of 2002 I was, I was temping in an office in Coventry and out of the blue I got a phone call in the afternoon from Chris Charlesworth famous omnibus press editor <laughs> and enemy writer of the sentence I think um, anyway he, he rang me up and said basically we're, we're, we're giving you a yes to this um, and I, I sort of skipped to the bus stop while bringing my mum it was quite exciting. How many years had you spent hanging on the bus press by this point? I wasn't harassed. <laughs> I sent them a letter with some more stuff every every year or so. You updated them after your program. Yeah, it was, that, was, that had been yeah, six, six years of steady pressure. Did they get involved with like saying, "Oh, I think you should trim this bit down"? And not really, not really. Um, I I wish they had a bit. To be honest, I mean, when I when I read back on it now, there's there are some bits of flab and there are some little repetitions and things that annoy me a bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, they more or less published it as I as I sent it. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think they they took out a little, a couple of little bits that could might be considered legally dicey or whatever. Mm. Um, nothing very interesting, I think. What, what were those? <laughs> Not allowed to say. Um, no, there, there was um, there was a character who was involved with their career quite early on, who uh, people made some slightly accusatory comments about. Um, and some of that got trimmed down a bit. And I, I'm not sure, but I think some of the stuff about Fire Records probably got looked at as well, because obviously that that relationship with the with the label they were signed to in the eighties, which didn't really work out, um, that became a quite a fractious relationship. Ultimately, mm, yeah. Reading the book, uh, you struggled with the specifics of how this deal has become such a nightmare. You must have developed. Um, 
a fair amount of legal knowledge to get to grips with all the uh, the minutiae there. Um, I don't know really. They they um they did this stupid thing where they they signed a seven album deal with them and then they sort of tried very hard not to sign it because they didn't want to. But it was the only way of getting a record out. There, there, there was oh the I, I forget the legal specifics of it, but there was. There was um there was a, a kick-ass Canadian manager involved who um, gave them the impression they could walk away from this this quite binding deal and sign with Island Records, which turned out not to be the case. Um, yeah, things things got difficult with them, but yeah, I mean they, they were paying royalties on all their sort of big albums to to fire records, which must have rankled somewhat. Nice pension plan for them there. So you've said that initially researching the book was a kind of challenge to yourself to see if you could amass all this then unavailable information yeah. regarding Pope's career in the 80s. Um, did you also feel a sense of duty in recording this lost music scene? Because obviously in the book you don't just talk about Pope, there are also names to conjure with such as Artery and uh, Digvis Drill. Digvis Drill, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, yeah, I thought it was important to sort of document where they'd come up from. And a little bit of that was to do with that that conversation with Russell, which left a bit of an impression on me, um, the sense that um, because I wasn't there, I wouldn't necessarily understand the context. So I tried to get a lot of the context in. Mm. I guess because they were... Um, an unknown local band and they obviously had something at that time um, and what they were doing did have some merit even though it wasn't quite the finished product or whatever um, yeah I, I wanted to sort of find out what else there was you know who their who their peers and contemporaries were and sometimes that would kind of come into its own anyway I mean Jarvis subsequently has talked quite a lot about archery and how they were sort of a huge influence on him. Um, and, yeah, I mean, dig this drill. Part of the reason, to be bluntly honest, why they're in it quite so much was uh, just their, their singer, Oggy McGrath, was such an entertaining interviewee. <laughs> he was um, so quotable that I quoted him an awful lot, <laughs> more than he probably deserved. Uh, just because it was funny. Well, talking of interviewees, we haven't mentioned that you, know, you didn't get to interview Jarvis. Yeah. Have you met him since? Yeah, I met him once um, when he did his lyric book. And he did um, a signing at Waterstones in Sheffield. And, um, yeah, he was all right. I told him who I was. Um, trying to be brief, you know, you don't want to be a pest. And he, he just said, oh, yeah, I've, um, I've read bits of that, actually. It's quite accurate. Which, you know, I was happy with that. I did, tr- obviously I tried to get get interviews with him over the years. And uh, the frustrating thing about it was I, I never got a no out of him. Um, I was always um, going through the official channels. I was talking to his management or whatever. And for ages they were saying, oh yeah, we'll ask him. Or, oh, we've, we've, we've sent him an email, he's not replied yet. And this went on for ages. Um, which is kind of also why the rest of the 
latter members of the band mostly aren't in it because I kind of couldn't get Rough Trade to get a message to them without having gone through Jarvis first. So I was kind of stuck. I mean, right at the end, I got Nick Banks to talk to me, got a message to him, and he, he met up with me in Sheffield, and he was great. Um, couldn't couldn't have been more helpful. Um, he kind of lived up to uh, his reputation as the uncomplicated, sensible one, um, <laughs> in that he actually just came and sat in Mr Kite's wine bar on Division Street and uh, sort of went through the whole thing. So there's loads of him in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, Jarvis was, um, yeah, it would have been great to get an interview with Jarvis. In a way, he didn't suffer that much because he'd done so many interviews. There was a huge sort of tower of, of press cuttings that I could, I could nick, basically. Mm. So his voice is in there quite a lot, even mm. though obviously if I'd got to talk to him, it would have been a different thing. I can understand now, actually, why he didn't really want to talk to me better than I could then. Um, I think maybe if it is something that is actually your life and somebody unsolicited coming and saying, right, I am going to write the story of your life. It's kind of, uh, well, I'll be the judge of that, actually. Mm, well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I would probably think if I were in, in that position. Reading the book also, it seems as though throughout the whole of the 90s, Jarvis was struggling so much with his past and his life and what had happened to lead him to the point where he was at. And questions like that, it might have been... It, it might not have been helpful during the apparent existential crisis he was undergoing circa 1997 to have you bringing him up. What are you saying? <laughs> Maybe it would have been good for him to talk to you. <laughs> I don't know. I um, Yeah, I mean, I think as well the uh, the indie past, the, I think he'd spent quite a lot of time trying to live that down. He didn't necessarily want to be judged on the strengths of freaks or whatever. Mm. I think he's probably a bit more at peace with that now. Well, in, in terms of your research raising the spectre of forgotten port recordings from the 80s, pre-internet, how did you go about tracking down the uh, the pulp obscurities? And had you already amassed a full pulp discography around the time that you were starting work on the book? I had all the records, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, all the, the sort of the, the rarities and bootlegs and stuff. Um, some of that I got to hear as a result of interviewing people. There was um, a man called Wayne Furness who was there drumming for a few years in the early days. He'd kept everything. And uh, on that first trip to Sheffield when I met Russell, I went round to his house and uh, we sort of spent an evening listening to all the tapes and stuff. Oh, wow. Which was really exciting. <laughs> and... Uh, then I lost all my notes in a phone box in Sheffield the next day. Oh. So I had to kind of quickly scroll it all down again. Um, but yeah, that was great. And uh, yeah, I mean, you could probably... Some of it is, was sort of doing the rounds on bootlegs and stuff anyway. But yeah, I mean, there's um, there was a bloke who I interviewed who'd um, recorded one of their demos a bit later on. And yeah, you could you could get stuff out of people in that way. And... I'm not necessarily going to pretend that wasn't a motive in me doing it. <laughs> Obviously, being a massively geeky pulp fan with a chance of getting unheard stuff out of people, that was quite an exciting thing. 
How intimidating, though. I mean, in my late teens, I don't think I could have, you know, done that thing of ringing people up and going around to people's houses. And you have to be quite a an outgoing teenager to. It's weird. I wasn't, and I'm not. And yeah, um, yeah. It sounds like something you'd need a lot of confidence for, or you'd otherwise have to be, as you say, rather gauche. Yeah, it was just sheer sort of bloody mindedness, really. And you know, it's that thing. You know, when you when you're young, you don't know what you can't do. <laughs> <laughs> so has there been anyone else where you thought, oh? Yeah, maybe I could write a book about that. Well, I did try to pursue a career as a writer for a bit afterwards. Um, there was never another book that really reared its head. I did a couple of things for Mojo. Um, and, yeah, I quite liked researching obscure, nerdy kind of topics. I mean, one of the things was... Um, I did something on Sid Barrett's Last Band, his sort of absolute twilight period in Cambridge to these, these sort of weird little gigs in coffee shops in front of 30 people and stuff like that. Um, so I guess I had a taste for digging up un- undocumented stuff of, from otherwise well-known stories. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I realised after a bit of pursuing a career as a writer it probably wasn't really for me I think I was more I was more interested in the subject matter than I was interested in uh, actually writing so you know the 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 chunk of time that I spent on pulp the depth with which I I went into it um, something like that doesn't really come along again you know so given that you're appreciation for the band's music was the primary motivating factor in writing the book how did your relationship with the music change, if change it did over the course of writing it <laughs> well you could probably see if you read it that it's uh, my, my, my my critical faculties get a bit sharper as I, as I go through the book interestingly reading the book the um, earlier albums you're very enthusiastic about and then when we get to a different class, you've really just reached an absolute zenith of enthusiasm, <laughs> of enthusiasm <laughs> for the band, um, which is, I should say, is very intoxicating for the reader. Okay. But then by the time we get to This Is Hardcore, you've run out of superlatives. So, and then it, it seems as though you're, you're trying a little harder to be a little more distanced and, and critical yeah. because um, when we get to the release of This Is Hardcore and track two, Dishes, I was quite shocked by how <laughs> savage you are yeah, about that song. Yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> Having yeah. been very, very enthusiastic about everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's, again, it's it's a... It indicates the amount of... The, the lengthy period of time that I spent writing the book. I guess my... Um, and it shows that I wrote it chronologically. So I was writing the bit about this is hardcore, and I was about a month off deadline. And I was writing the bit about it about four years earlier. You know, mm. um, I guess when I started it, I had this mentality that, uh, yeah, this forgotten stuff deserves to be sort of given an airing, and yeah, it needs committed listening. 
to get out of it what's in there, but there's something in there. Um, so yeah, you're right. I sort of felt it was a a function of the book to kind of properly look at this stuff and and place it on an equal footing with what came later, mm, which possibly wasn't actually that. It wasn't maybe as deserved as I thought it was. And yeah, by this is hardcore. I I possibly was overcompensating a bit um, by being overly critical. You know, I think if I were to redo the book, I might not bother so much with that. I don't think anyone particularly really cares. That I don't think the lyrics to Dishes are very good. <laughs> I, I found it interesting. <laughs> oh, I'll leave it in there. Which sort of does bring us to the idea of would you update it? Have you considered that? Mm. Could you bring yourself to do <laughs> If there was the prospect of a, a new edition, you could put on the cover quite accurate Jarvis Cocker. I could, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, I I pitched the idea when they reformed um, of doing, doing a sort of updated version and um, Omnibus weren't that enthusiastic. I th- they said, well, we'll give you 500 quid and you can write a new chapter at the end. But you can't change anything else in it because you have to retypeset it, and we can't be asked. Which I, I, I declined because I, I would certainly at that, maybe even now, I would quite like to go right back and sort it out. Really, I mean, that's probably no. I'm probably being a little bit down on it. I'm, I'm, you know, I do like it as it is, but. You know, you know when you've written something, and especially if it's an old thing, it there are bits that annoy you, and there are bits that you change, and there are bits of information you'd like to shove in there that you didn't know at the time, and stuff like that, and bits of bits of sort of insight as well. I mean, um, there's not much of an argument to it, really. I don't think that you know it, it's it tells the story. It doesn't really uh, advance a lot of theories about overarching themes and stuff like that. And there's, there's things I've thought about since which actually maybe. Well, does this bring us back to the sort of seniors' concern about not appreciating the minor strike, etc.? Yeah. Is there a social history of Sheffield element that? You... There probably is. There's that. This book's probably not the place for it. But I was thinking of stuff like, well, what was it that? drove Jarvis to keep on doing it for all these years you know he was doing it for 15 years without any real success and the the stock line on that was he just really wanted to be a pop star or um he was no good at doing anything else which I mean yeah both of those things are possibly true but you know you do wonder whether there are other things under there, I wonder whether um, his mother was um, uh, at art college and she had Jarvis unexpectedly um, and had to kind of give up her art to bring up her kids. And he's mentioned in passing that he always felt guilty about that. And I just wonder whether there was a bubbling under element of, of, of that for him that he felt that his mother didn't have the option of continuing with her art 
you know, she was she was forced to drop it and settle down at a certain point, and maybe he felt he he owed it to her as he was the reason that had happened to kind of stick with his creative endeavours until you know he couldn't anymore. Um, you know, maybe I could maybe I could have stuck something like that in there. Mm. Well, you could have a second book then. Yeah, you, <laughs> you could use that book. Jarvis Psycho Cocker, why? <laughs> yeah, uh, I would love to read a Freudian psychobiography. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I mean, there's there's other books that have come along since as well, though, that kind of fill some of that stuff. I mean, there's um, Uncommon by Owen Hathaway. Yes, which, which praises your book, which, which is very nice of him. <laughs> yes, um, um, whilst yeah, showing it up a bit because yeah, he's. He doesn't go into that kind of thing, but he uh, it, he he talks about the social context a lot more, and the uh, this idea of you know, what's his phrase? He says vengeful self creation. Mm. You know the sort of uh, the Bowie Morrissey kind of model of a of the bedsit fantasist who gets his own back on the world by becoming mm. this fabulous creation. Um, so yeah, so that there there are all the books that have come on that do things that this book doesn't so it's fine but they do acknowledge they're indebted to your book because you can't write a book that with no historical background in it without acknowledging that somebody's already covered all of that and but i still think i'd like to read you uh psychoanalyzing jarvis cocker that'd be great (laughs) i think what i've just said is worth a limit of my insight to be honest (laughs) to return to freudian psychobiography do you see an element of the vengeful creation in your own writing of the book? And were you inspired by the example of Pulp having worked away for so long before <laughs> reaping the rewards? Um, I, I, I've observed those parallels. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so staying with the pulp theme, you're going to talk about another book about pulp. Uh, what have you got? I've got Freak Out the Squares, Life in a Band Called Pulp by Russell Senior. And uh, what does that add to the, the pulp history? It adds, uh, yeah, it's a very, um, very different telling of the story. Um, Russell, um, for anyone who doesn't know, was the second longest running member of the band apart from Jarvis so he was there from the early 80s to the mid 90s and quit just after they made it big mm. and the book tells tells a story of that but also tells a story of him uh, rejoining briefly when they when they reformed and then leaving again <laughs> <laughs> and i really like it it's um He's obviously uh, quite an quite an intelligent, erudite sort of person. He was always the uh, the second most quotable person in the band after Jarvis. He was, um, but quite different as well. He was always quite uh, quite dry and um, quite sort of a bit cerebral, I guess. 
the, you could tell from the image that you know that he was he had this seriousness about him on stage. You see him sort of standing next to Jarvis in a in a, in a black suit playing a violin, sort of staring out the audience, and uh, there was a seriousness about him, but an archness to him as well. And that kind of that kind of comes across in the book, I think. In uh, Truth and Beauty, the story of Port by Mark Sturdy, Russell mm. comes across as quite an aloof um, character. Some of the interviewees in the book seem to have thought him to be a bit of an arsehole. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure that, that's, that's true. Um, I mean, not that he's necessarily a bit of an arsehole, but he, yeah, I can see how he would rub people up the wrong way. He was very, very serious about things when they were a struggling Sheffield band on the dole for ten years. He was the one who would be walking around with a clipboard, (laughs) chucking stones up at people's windows, trying to get them out of bed at two in the afternoon. Uh, I think even the people who would consider him an arsehole will probably also credit him with the fact the band lasted that long with nothing really to keep it going. Um, So, from reading his book, what does it seem like his motivations were in keeping the band going? He seemed to really, really, really believe in it. Um, He was... um, I've got the farty chair here, haven't I? I (laughs) Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah. The listeners won't necessarily know that sounds coming from your direction. Okay. We don't have binaural stereo on this yeah, device. If, you, if you're plugging your quad devices, you might be able to tell. Um, yeah, he he really, really believed in, in what they were doing. Um, and that's kind of the the flip side of, of, of this character who on one side was very serious and very logical and very administrative, I guess. He was the one who uh, would photocopy all the flyers and <laughs> book the rehearsals and get all the gigs and the sort of that kind of stuff. But he had obviously picked up very early on that there was there was something between him and Jarvis and the other members of the band at that time that... Um, that could lead somewhere, and he took it very, very seriously from day one. I mean, in your book, people compare him to Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps this is just because he was good at admin. Um, he always reminded me of, now I get them modelled up, um, which one's Ron and which one's Russell out of Sparks. Yeah, it's Ron, isn't it? I think he wears contact lenses, you know. Mm. Which is, this, this is not widely publicised, but I have seen him with specs. When he's off duty, so I think that could be part of it. Because they do make your eyes like that, don't they? Mm. Um, but yeah, he also he's he's a little bit scathing in places about uh, Jarvis's distinctive stage presence. You know, he he feels that he's a little too close to the sort of frilly shirted lounge singer, and he he goes on about how he'd seen former heroes of the local band scene almost by accident end up in club bands playing the chicken mm. in the basket circuit and he's kind of he may, he perhaps feels it his duty to 
pull things the other way by looking extremely serious and extremely odd and making a lot of strange noises. Well, well, I get the impression that Russell is the real purist of the band and perhaps the pulp connoisseur's choice of pulp man <laughs> or woman. Um, yeah, it, was, it was always my favourite. Mm. Even when I met him and he was a bit strange. Mm. <laughs> so does he dish the dirt in this? Not not hugely. I mean, what one of the things that is fairly admirable is that there are, you know, he's obviously had fallings out. He quit the band at their peak, didn't really do any music for another 14 years or whatever, apart from the highly underrated Vanini. Oh. Underrated, in my opinion. Yeah. For more information, see Mark Steady's book about Pulp. <laughs> There's seven pages about Vanini in that book. And I wouldn't change a bit of it. Um, yeah, he obviously had fallings out um, with the band. He stops slightly short of really slagging anyone off. He'll go on about things that niggled him, and you do get a sense of the um, the tedium of being on tour in a band when you're on tour constantly and you're living in each other's pockets. I mean, he's got these, you know, little epithets and that sort of, you know, you end up hating the colour of each other's socks more than you hate fascism and stuff. <laughs> and that's all quite believable. How um, much does he hate fascism, we have to ask us? A lot. He hates fascism a lot, Tom. OK, he sorry. He doesn't like fascism sorry, at all. I'm not suggesting he's really like him. <laughs> we should very emphatically say that we don't think that he's a Nazi. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Well, I haven't he's... read his book. I've only read Mark's third. He was a... <laughs> on the basis of that. I think the jury's out. He was he, he was a scargulite. He used to go picketing. Um, he was a member of the Revolutionary Communist Party for a bit. Back to the um, to the miners' strike. What what have we got in his book about the miners' strike? Um, yeah, he does talk about it a bit. Well, I think one of the telling things about it is he. He doesn't, it's not just a memoir of the band. There's a lot of stuff around what the band was. So um, he talks about, um, you know, on the first day of the miners' strike, going along to the um, the NUM headquarters and saying, right, what can I do to help? And, and, and you can sort of see that kind of environment did sort of inform what Pulp was about in the early days. Um no, they, they weren't writing songs about the miners, yeah. but there was that sort of outsider stance and that quite sort of hardline stance. Um, but I'll uh, I'll read a bit. This is nothing to do with the miners' strike, but again, he's talking about. I mean, when I when I met him, he was he had this big thing that you needed to understand the context that Pulp came from to understand Pulp really. Um, so he talks about these. Uh, these strange performance art events he did um, around the time that he started um, he started playing in the band. And he's done this uh, Dardaris play that he's written, uh, that he's recruited Jarvis um, and the pulp drummer Magnus Doyle. And he says the uh, it was performed in Crucible Studio Theatre, where it fell absolutely flat. We had more success in pubs, clubs and abandoned warehouses, where its edginess was appreciated. There was one scene with the stage instruction, woman walks to front of stage, leaving Hoover running in front of microphone until first audience member walks out. <laughs> Usually it was more than one, I was pleased with this. It was not that I didn't want anyone to like it, I just wanted them to be committed and prepared to suffer. Cabaret Voltaire were unprepared to suffer. 
<laughs> Despite describing themselves as practising dardarists, they stayed drinking downstairs in the Hallamshire pub rather than come upstairs and see perhaps the first dardarist play ever performed in Sheffield. <laughs> I used to put on performance nights in, in out-of-the-way locations. These had five-minute open mic slots for anything anybody wants to do, preferably not music. One of these, in an abandoned warehouse on the Wicker, a run-down inner-city street in Sheffield. Magnus's performance consisted of putting a metal bucket on his head and charging off in all directions. He hit walls and got up, knocked a ladder over onto his head and got up. In the end, the room was clear, with just Magnus crashing into walls. Then he put another record on and lined up a pint of beer and a pint of baked beans and a pint of tinned tomatoes and drank them one after another oh, as if conducting a magic show. Magnus then got out a selection of soft fruits with a manic gleam in his eye. Fearing the worst, I scarpered out of the room, only to see Magnus's parents coming up the stairs. I desperately tried to engage them in conversation until the groans from the room subsided and Magnus came out with a grin on his face. Um, me. What was Magnus doing to that fruit? Uh, he was um, having intercourse with it. Yeah, this one seems a, a long way from the top of the pot. Well, yes. It does, uh, but, yeah. And do, do we feel that Russell was happier in this world? In some ways, yeah. I mean, I think he had an appreciation of the weirdness, um, and he encouraged that. He, one of his quotes was, you know, he and Jarvis, as the doors might say, were always trying to break on through the other side, whereas Magnus was on the other side, as you can probably tell from that mm. excerpt. I'd rather be on the other side than Magnus, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, I mean, he he didn't necessarily get on with those elements in the band, but he saw the value of having them there. He saw the value of the sort of the, the weirdness. And there was, I mean, a lot of the people who I talked to who saw Pulp in those days said, you know, there was something uniquely strange about that line of Pulp and there was an, ins- an intensity that, that isn't there really, um, and later on you have to look for it in the recordings really you know I mean you, the, the album Freaks that they made isn't despite how wonderful I say it is in my podcast <laughs> it possibly isn't that wonderful really um, and not necessarily just because it's badly recorded you know it's not it's not quite there it doesn't quite do them do justice to to what they were about um but yeah i think he he appreciated the arty weirdness but then he go he, later on he talks about how actually he found it more creatively rewarding to do pop music um that yeah it's actually kind of quite easy to scratch away in your cellar with your detuned violin and be really intense but it's harder to do something that's kind of going to get played on Radio 1, but still has that edge of something interesting about it. Well, in your book, it seems that by the time he leaves the band, his musical limitations are becoming a source of some frustration to certain other members of the group. Someone comments on Russell's habit of playing the same guitar line on every song, which when um, I saw this written down, I 
realised, I, I think I know which guitar line you mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Running through pop songs in my head. He, well, yeah, and I think he'd be the first to admit his, his musical limitations. He's, yeah, he's not a natural musician. He's, um, I think in an interview somewhere else, he, he said he was like like the lemon juice. You know, you wouldn't want a whole glass of it, but it adds piquancy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I, yeah, I think probably that there was there was musical limitations to him, and yeah, maybe that did shorten his time in the band when you know they were they they, they were wanting to go in in other directions, and uh, again, there were things you have to read between the lines about. I think he po- probably has a a slightly conflicted attitude towards uh, Mark Webber who didn't exactly replace him in the band. He was kind of initially on stage as a second guitarist and keyboard player. Um, And then he was a member of the band. And then Russell wasn't a member of the band anymore. So he kind of replaced him. And he quite pointedly refers to him several times in the book as Paul's rhythm guitarist, Mark Webber. Well, interestingly, of course, it's Mark Webber's face which appears on the spine of, of your book about Pulp. Yes. Because of the way in which the, the band portrait and the rear cover slips onto the spine. That that in the book, where it, it's um, by accident, there's a picture of Mark on the, on the spine. Not and necessarily the most recognisable member of the band. No, no, and it's just, yeah, I didn't design the cover, but yeah, that, you can you can see he's just on the edge of the photo and it wraps around. And Russell's not on the cover, because oh. it's a picture of the band as it was when the book came out. But yeah, just to finish that point though, um, he then actually sort of goes, talks in the book about an incident when they reformed with Mark on stage and Jarvis having a dig about him, because Jarvis was rambling on between songs as he tends to, and... Mark going to start the next song by Newley on his, on his guitar and, and Jarvis sort of blows up on him from front of the audience at Bixton Academy and Russell kind of leaps to his defence afterwards and sort of says, well, that's not really on, you know, and he does sort of say that fundamentally Mark's a lovely bloke. So, yeah, you can see that there's kind of, there's a slightly conflicted attitude there. Yeah, it's one thing that I felt from reading your book where obviously Paul have had so many different members over the years, but it seems as though on the whole everyone's stayed on quite good terms yeah. with each other. What have Russell's relationships been like with the band since leaving? Does he touch on that? He does a bit, yeah. And he says it's it's yeah, it's been their story's been a success in that they do all occasionally speak, and without the aid of legal representation, uh, you know, I think that he used to um, when he went down to London after he left the band, he stayed at Jarvis's house and stuff like that. so yeah, I mean, I think he saw doing that tour, that comeback tour, as um, a way of rounding off unfinished business. Again, though, it's telling what's not in the book, and it might be sort of a case of being a bit northern and taciturn and, and, and not wanting to say these things. But there's not a lot of warmth towards Jarvis, really, um, or anyone else particularly. <laughs> Uh, apart from, you know, he talks about how, you know, this, this, him and Nick Banks used to sort of keep each other amused in the tour bus for years just by being stupid. And, you know, he, he says the beginning of the end for Pulp the first time was the 
the point at which they stopped taking the piss out of each other. Mm. That call, that always kind of kept things on an even keel. Mm. You know, you you would disperse tension by being loud and stupid and sort of playfully obnoxious towards each other. And when members of the band mentioning their names decided they didn't like that, <laughs> um, that was when it became unspoken and coldness. I think he felt that uh, when certain band members, I think most of the band ended up moving down to London, apart from him and Nick in the end. Um, and yeah, I think there's there's an implication that people were getting caught up in the in the dazzling London life. Mm. Actually, there's another. There's a shorter bit that I'll read. Okay, this is. Um, the, the book's written in, in a sort of non-linear way. It jump it, it jumps around. So this is this is middle of the book, but it's at the height of Pulp's fame. Um, we'd hung out with the beautiful people, but now back in London, we are the beautiful people who everyone wants at their parties. Sitting in the back of a shiny black taxi cab, I see Alex from Blur, who seems to live outside Bar Italia. He's heard of a Brit art launch in an empty warehouse with just a fluorescent bulb going on and off. Then there's something going off at Madame Jojo's, where I have a bit of a dance to cigarettes and alcohol by Oasis. But it's all getting a bit rowdy, so I go to Violet's, which is run by an acid jazz outfit called The Sandals. There are party games like Pin the Tail on the Donkey, played to a soundtrack with music from Italian lesbian vampire films, and cats with goatee beards play along on bongos. There's an award ceremony, but we won't get anything, because the order of events says, Winner's Dad to collect award. So that means it's Weller again, because he's picking up everything these days, apart from Best Female, and nobody else would let the dad pick up an award for them. Someone tells Weller's dad that Wright said Fred at number one, and he thinks it's Bernard Cribbins. My girlfriend's too sexy for her shirt. And this woman, who's something in the media, grabs her boobs, saying, that's a nice dress. My girlfriend says, thanks. The woman says, got any Charlie? My girlfriend says, no. The woman says, it's not a nice dress, then. And blinks her eyes. Oh, what a cruel and heartless world! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but then I mean that. Yeah, that's kind of. I'm, I'm also I'm beginning to hate it all. But, uh, yeah, believe not to have become a successful pop star. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. There are other bits where he's surprisingly knowing what I knew of him before. You know, him always being the contrarian. There are bits when he surprisingly seemed to quite enjoy the London life and the partying and stuff like that. And that kind of continues when they when they reform. He decides he's going to travel on a separate bus from the rest of the band. Oh. And uh, the Russ bus, mm. which is this little mini minibus of um, just him and some select friends, uh, because he, he's um, he's got a fear of flying, so he can't actually do all of the gigs. He, you know, he sort of signs up to the uh, the tour on the basis it's kind of an extended summer holiday, um, sort of doing a leisurely gig every week at different festivals across Europe. But he kind of gets a bit disillusioned with it because they suddenly start slotting in other extra gigs in between, so he ends up not doing them all. But yeah, the um, the, the the Russ bus sort of uh, sounds like um, more of a party scene perhaps than mm. the, the main pulp tour bus, but perhaps that's what he wants us to believe. I understand that since leaving Pulp, he um, has worked as an antiques dealer. He was doing that when he was in Pulp. He's he's done that kind of all along. He's got a, yeah an ongoing interest in yeah antique antique glass mainly. 
Italian. Ooh, interesting. Hence why his post pork band was called Vanini. Lovely. I should have to show him my collection. <laughs> He's heard that line before, Hazel. <laughs> listening to Yammer of the Gods, the podcast where we talk about writing about music. Thank you for joining us. My name is Hazel Smichinska. Uh, today I've been joined by Tom Robinson and our special guest Mark Sturdy. So thank you to them both. Bye. Mm-hmm.